This month is Cliff Central's birthday month, and we'll be celebrating uncensored, unscripted, unradio with Savannah Premium Cider. Join me and the rest of the Cliff Central crew at Movida in Sunninghill on Friday the 29th at 9 p.m. for our first birthday party ever. Doors open at 9 p.m. Email info at movida.co.za for pre-bookings. For more information, find Savannah Premium Cider Facebook or Twitter and all the details on cliffcentral.com. It's our party and we'll drive if we want to. It's time for a WeChat workout. WeChat. Go to the Cliff Central account. Tap connect. Then message to show. On radio. On radio. More of the good stuff. Cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon, you're tuned in to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm joined in studio by Daily Maverick reporter Greg Nicholson. Greg, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you, man. We've got a great, great show lined up. We'll be talking about illicit financial outflows from Africa, as well as talking to a renowned author about uh, challenging the stereotypes about Zimbabwe. But first, Greg, I want to talk to you about something you've been following closely. Um, um, a couple of months ago, just to give some context, uh, we saw the xenophobic violence flare up in, in, in some areas of South Africa, so namely KwaZulu-Natal and some areas in Gauteng. And we had, we had terrible scenes of, of foreigners being chased out of their homes and, and some even being killed. Um, and the immediate response from government was, was I think quite worrying. We had, we had, we wasted a bit of time talking about xenophobia versus Afrophobia. And we saw some countries, uh, f- actually flying some of their citizens back home. Um, eventually we saw the army coming in and the president was, was granted access to the army and actually have them, uh, you know, operating in, in, in the country, which is, I think whenever we have the army being deployed internally, it's, it's something we should be watching. And you've been doing just that, Greg, haven't you? Mm, mm. Um, so, I mean, Greg, you've been following this closely. So, I mean, my question is just really, really broad. Firstly, what, what's the army actually up to? It's actually a good question. Yeah. I think when, when President Zuma, I think it was around 24th of April or towards the end of April. Yeah. President Zuma announced that uh, in in his in his statement he said 338 members of the SANDF would be deployed to assist the police in in terms of to to help maintain law and order in KZN and Gauteng and anywhere else where they're needed. Now that was right in the midst of mm. outcry of xenophobia and it was also right after um Emmanuel Sotola as he was known then was yeah. um was killed in Alexandria where we yeah. saw him on the front cover of the Sunday Times yeah. and that was sort of the one of the key symbolic moments in in really spreading um, caution about xenophobia throughout the country and throughout the world and so we saw the army deployed yeah. after that and we I think everyone everyone watching immediately assumed the army was being deployed to curb xenophobia yeah, that makes sense protect right? and the people who were being, being, being injured being chased or hmm. being killed yeah. and the defense minister effectively said that but President Zuma's statement um, um, explaining the deployment didn't actually say that he just said it was to support the police um, to maintain law and order where the need arises okay and so effectively what happened quite soon after that attack on Emmanuel Sotole in, um, mm. in Alexandra, there weren't too many more incidents of these xenophobic attacks. It actually sort of quietened down because of the, the response, particularly by civil society and government leaders and police. They really cracked down on this stuff and we saw, we saw a, a, a decline in reported incidents, right? Mm-hmm. Then the army was still deployed, particularly uh, assisting the police on Operation Fiala Reclaim. Yeah. And so, so you say, what do they do? What do they do if these xenophobia incidents aren't going on anymore? Yeah. It's effectively seems to have turned into a crime combating, um, program and operation. Mm. What we saw initially was it looked like the army was being deployed with the police to go into areas where foreign nationals particularly reside, areas like, um, Mayfair in Johannesburg, mm. Hillbrow, um, then later on the CBD of Johannesburg, or one, one of the symbols of, of where a lot of foreigners are is, um, the Johannesburg Central Methodist Church. The police and army were deployed to all of these areas and they ar- arrested quite a number of foreign migrants, um, allegedly who, who didn't have the correct documentation. Um, on Sunday, the latest update that we have got from this, from this Operation Fiala Reclaim was that mm. there are three, 3,914 people have been arrested and 1,650 of them are undocumented migrants. 
I'm not sure whether those numbers include people who have been you know, taken into the cells and then they actually have their papers and you know released or not. But the government's argument was this is definitely and categorically not a campaign to target foreign nationals. That's what they're saying. Okay. Though the reports we've had from from people who have been targeted are quite different. The government is saying that what this campaign is for is largely to combat um, South Africa's crime problem, really. But the question is then, why do we have the army? You don't, yeah, I mean, the army is not a crime. It's not a crime fighting. Why do we have the army deployed to, to combat crime problems, which the police should take the, the mandate on? A lot of people are asking, why hasn't the army gone to um, the Cape Flats, where there's a lot of gang gang activity, and the, the Democratic Alliance um, government in the Western Cape uh, specifically called for the army's yeah. intervention, but they yeah. were never deployed. So at the moment, it's, it's, it's hard to know actually what's going on and what the army are doing there assisting the police. It actually just seems like it's turned into it's just this big now crime-fighting operation where many foreigners are still being um, swept up. And we've seen incidents of those arrested in Johannesburg. They're being denied their rights um, when, when they're being detained. And, and it's sort of spiraled into this thing that's... That's this beast that, you know, now it's almost, I hate to say it, but sort of reminiscent of stories, you know, that you hear in apartheid where you have the armed forces on the streets, you know, searching, search, kicking down doors and asking for papers and, and, you know, arresting people for a little bit of dacha and stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, a few things on that. I saw a statement where lawyers for human rights had said they've reached an agreement with the army and the police and everyone, everyone now arrested has a right to consult a lawyer. And and that makes me think what what were they doing before if they're only just yeah. agreeing to this now and they're they're promised not to deport the foreigners for at least two weeks. So there have been stories of deportation on site, if I'm not mistaken, where there was almost, it almost seemed as if they were literally arresting people and deporting them and deporting them almost immediately. So the story there is really worrying and and could signify a whole lot of other problems as to what's going on with with um, this Operation Fiala reclaim. Yeah. So what happened was the army and the police went into the Johannesburg Central Methodist Church where everybody knows there's a lot of foreigners um, sort of squatting there, I guess. They're, they're allowed for a long time. And surrounding surrounding buildings where there are a lot of foreigners also sort of staying in the Johannesburg CBD. Yeah. They swept up a whole lot of these people. Some of them supposedly even they asked for they asked for their passports. People showed them and they said, "No, futsek, come, just get in the get in the van." In the van. They even arrested yeah. South Africans in this process, thinking they were thinking they were foreign migrants. You know, if, I suppose if you don't have your ID ready on site, then you you know, you know, off, off to Zimbabwe, Malawi. You go. Yeah, that's right. Jesus. So so these people were swept up, you know, and detained. I think it was a few hundred people or something like that yeah. in, in the one morning um, in, recently in Johannesburg. Then, so obviously news of this spread pretty quickly. Yeah. So there's the, the lawyers for human rights tried to get down there to see some of these guys who yeah. were detained. The police refused them access. And I'm not sure if the police know, and it's very worrying that these foreign detainees, foreign national um, people who've been detained, have the same rights to legal counsel as South Africans Absolutely. do. And what seemed to be happening is immediately they were getting pro- processed by home affairs officials um, to, to either facilitate um, deportation or send them to Lindella um, um, a Processing Center for, for then deportation. But they, some of these people are asylum seekers and refugees, and either they've, have, they've, had, they've applied for their permits or their permits have expired. And that doesn't mean you can just deport them straight away. Absolutely. And then these people, they were getting their legal rights denied. So mm-hmm. lawyers human rights went to court the day it happened. Okay. Court um, told the police minister and the police and the station commander of the Johannesburg um, police station mm-hmm. they have to give them access to lawyers. For two more days, they refused. Until, it wasn't until Monday that, that the majority of these, these detainees were actually um, granted their rights and could see lawyers, and so it's an extremely worrying situation. If if a lot of these people are getting swept up in this, which and which Fiala essentially means, you know, mm. like Operation Sweep, sweep a, lot, is, a lot of people are, are bringing it back to that um, dreaded sort of term, sweep up the rubbish. Absolutely, um, which says it says a whole lot more about about how the state views um, the the targets, I guess, of these operations, but. The thing is, this this is the only real case that I've I've seen at least where lawyers actually jumped jumped on 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 the case and actually tried to go to the assistance yes, of these such detainees. A short period of time, yeah. When there's something like three thousand nine hundred people who have been arrested across the country, you wonder how many others have been denied their rights. How many other stories are there? Not even of just um, for foreigners being arrested and denied their rights, but South Africans being arrested for for no apparent reason. 
I mean, I mean, Greg. I mean, I mean, something you said a few times that whenever you have the army patrolling the streets, and and just being used as a, as a regular crime fighting force, it's 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 already worrying. I mean, I think I think one thing, one other thing I'd really like to bring up really quickly is, is is the township of Tembekhlile, and that's somewhere, and that's something you reported on, that there was no incidents of there was no incidents of of xenophobic violence on there, but suddenly the army was there, and and, and what were they up to? So, so that, that's the question. Yeah. They said there was yeah. all of these attacks seem yeah. to come from criminal intelligence sources and tip-offs about criminal activity, activity in certain areas. Tembilifle isn't, isn't a, known as particularly prone to violence more than other informal settlements, but it is known for its independent political movement that is highly challenging the ANC. So that's the worry. Jesus, man, that, that, I mean, this is really something we need to, we need to keep watching. And, 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 and as you mentioned, when the army's patrolling the streets, we need to be worried. But Greg, just briefly, we need to, we need to switch topics quite quickly and, and talk about, uh, about illicit, illicit financial flows, uh, uh, flowing out of Africa. And, and we'll be talking to somebody who spent a lot of work working on this, uh, Professor Thomas Poggi. Um, Professor, are you here on the line? Hello, Professor? Yes, I am here. Fantastic. Um, so we will be just be talking to you about about uh, a conference you had yesterday and the work you've been doing at the at the Global Justice Program um, about, about illicit financial flows. Now, when when we hear the term illicit, you hear finance. I mean, we, we could be talking about terrorism money. We could be talking about drug money. So, what 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 kind of is the focus of of the work you're doing when you're tracking these global financial flows? Actually, by far the largest portion of these illicit financial outflows are by multinational corporations and individuals. So the criminal mm. components, the terrorist components, they exist, but they are vastly smaller. They use the same channels, but really the, the big outflows mm. are multinational corporations and individuals. And, and Professor, what sort of money are we talking about? Because it's astronomical figures that I don't think a lot of people know about. It's basically an attempt by multinational corporations to evade taxes in the countries in which they operate. So they have, obviously, subsidiaries in many different countries. Mm. They set up subsidiaries in tax havens. Then they do business between subsidiaries in the developing countries where they do business and the tax haven subsidiaries that are detrimental to the former and advantageous to the latter, and in that way, they shift profit out of the developing country into the tax haven, where, of course, uh, the profit doesn't need to be uh, taxed, right? There's no taxes to be paid on it. And that means they can have a lot of profit in a developing country without paying the usual taxes that would normally be due in that country. Now, Professor, um, I think it was the Global Financial Integrity Report that conservatively estimated that between 2003 and 2012, something like 529 billion American dollars left sub-Saharan Africa through illicit flows. Now, how does this money link to human rights? Well, uh, in two different ways. If that money had stayed in Africa, of course, it would have had tremendous multiplier effects. The money would have been invested in some way. It would have been spent. There would have been uh, work created for people. And so the economy would have benefited. And secondly, if that money had stayed, then taxes would have been paid on it because these are, for the most part, profits or they are investment capital that also where you have to pay taxes on the dividends, on the interest, on the capital gains. And so the, uh, for every dollar that flows out, African countries lose about 20 cents or 25 cents in tax revenues as well. And one of the interesting things here seems that often when we talk about the failure of uh, particularly African governments and sub-Saharan African governments to substantially improve the lives of the majority of their citizens, it's often the politicians we blame. But in this instance, it seems like large multinational corporations are undermining states and politicians. Yes, that is entirely true. Of course, there is enough uh, blame to go around. I'm sure that politicians also <laughs> are to blame for their spending priorities in many ways. But it is true that, uh, and this is an estimate by uh, Christian Aid, uh, if the money were not flowing out and stayed and were taxed, and if it were spent according to the existing spending priorities of uh, governments in the developing countries, 
somewhere around 350,000 child deaths each year could be prevented with that money or would be prevented with that money just by spending the money in exactly the way governments are now spending it. Mm. And it seems to also fit, in, fit into the global um, pattern of increasing inequality. What we have here is it seems, seems that money that should be going to, to governments of particularly poor nations are instead being pocketed by huge corporations making, making billions in profit. Yeah, that is exactly right. So it is one example of these centrifugal tendencies that are at work that are increasing and increasing inequality. Of course, these mechanisms at work that companies are exploiting, that rich individuals are exploiting, these mechanisms are ones that are deliberately put in place, often with the connivance of Western countries Mm. who are benefiting from this system as well. And here it's an example of how uh, rich and well-connected companies and individuals can buy themselves the rules and regulations that in turn benefit them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes them even richer and even politically more powerful. I mean, I mean, this when you're describing it, it, it almost sounds like I'm trying to think of where to start in tackling this, and it, it, it sounds it sounds like a tough one because if we have the, the multinationals, you know, with with, with the with the Western countries complicit in, in making this happen, and we've, if we've got local politicians also also in on this whole on this whole transfer of funding, then where does one start in trying to combat this? Well, you can combat it in different ways. Mm. One very important way to combat is is through transparency, right? It's a difficult topic, and it's very hard for ordinary citizens to understand it. But if citizens try a little bit, they can understand it, and we have to communicate it as clearly as possible to get citizens to force governments uh, to be transparent Mm. and to close these loopholes. So, so, Professor, what then should citizens be demanding from their governments? What would be perhaps the three or four top um, priority demands that we should actually say to our governments that we want implemented so, this, so this, these illicit flows can cease? Okay, so number one would be uh, for all accounts, yeah. uh, the beneficial owners have to be known. No more secret accounts oh. of any sort. Second, automatic exchange of financial information. So... Governments should demand from one another that they give each other information about their taxpayers having accounts in other countries. Third, multinational corporations should report their profits and losses country by country. No longer just a global general accounting, Mm. but for each country, what are your operations there? What are the, how many employees do you have? Because that would quickly show that uh, companies make huge profits in secrecy jurisdictions and tax havens where they have basically no employees. How come? And then in very big countries like South Africa, yeah. they have thousands of employees and no profit. Mm-hmm. So country by country yeah. import, uh, reporting is very important. And then maybe a last thing is we have to stop trade misinvoicing. So very often there are discrepancies between what a company tells the country from which it exports and what the company tells the country into which it imports. Mm. And those things have, been, have to be consolidated. There must be no discrepancies between the import expo- invoice and the export invoice. But, Professor, sometimes it seems that doing this could be quite a challenge, particularly in, in sub-Saharan African states where, number one, or, or, or any states really, where, where number one... Um, a lot of politicians are accused of being in bed um, with, even if they're not responsible for this, still being in bed with um, large multinational corporations. And number two, citizens are often denied a voice and, and avenues to, to express themselves um, um, as to making demands from their governments. Yes, uh, that's right. And that is, of course, something that needs to change, right? We have to democratize the officially democratic states of Africa and, and frankly, of the Western states where I come from as well, right? It, democracy yeah. is, uh, is sick also in the United States and also in some of the European countries. Yeah. So, yes, citizens have to have uh, more of an input, and first and foremost, input uh, and accountability begins with information. Citizens have to learn, or at least some uh, organizations, civil society organizations, NGOs, have to learn uh, how this money is being siphoned off and have to try to explain that to the general public, and the public then has to support these organizations in demanding accountability from politicians. 
you will not be able to get these illicit financial flows down to zero. Totally impossible. But you can definitely get it down to half its present magnitude, and that already would mean that half the losses that Africa is now experiencing in terms of healthcare, in terms of education and so on, half these losses could be avoided. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned that for... Um, uh, for every one dollar for an investment, eighty-four cents is leaving illegally. And, and when, when I when I hear that, it's it's astounding. And I think of just how much work could go into you know into public health and education and so on if if we just manage to keep some of that money at home. Yes, that is exactly right. And I have to say that when I first came to this topic, yeah. I was also just flabbergasted. I Jeez. couldn't believe that it is vastly more than all the foreign aid that flows into Africa is just dwarfed by the outflows. Yeah. Now, Professor, one of the things you mentioned in your in your keynote speech yesterday was particularly about the the reasoning for why we should continue to tackle human rights um, deprivations, and and I think it would be nice if you could elaborate on that a little bit. I think one of one of the examples, what what you said was poverty is avoidable at uh, at a tolerable cost, even if it even if poverty. Um, the situation's better than 1990. Those my notes, you know. Um, well, what what you were saying was that. Although, as humans, we have made extreme advances, you know, within a few generations, and we have had some advances in in um, access to human rights, there's still so much to be done. Yeah, there's certainly a tremendous amount to be done, and we tend to uh, exaggerate the amount of aid that we give and what we have achieved. And here, I think one thing that is very important to bear in mind is that we shouldn't think of the problem of development as one which requires assistance, right? Often the rich people in the world, both uh, within the poorer countries and also in the richer countries, they think of themselves as being benefactors, as doing wonderful things to help poor people and so forth. And I think that really the relationship is quite different. They do an enormous amount to harm poor people, in particular through a network of rules, both at the international level and also at the national level, that systematically is biased in favor of the rich and thereby increases inequality. So one thing that is really astonishing is that with all that development aid that has been given with the Millennium Development Goals and so on and so forth, Inequality is increasing, and the share of the poor in uh, global income is actually decreasing. The poor would be better off without all that heavy lifting of poor people out of poverty, as it's often called. They would be better off if they just got a proportional share of yeah. global economic growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and finally, Prof, before we let you go, um, I just want to emphasize or ask, how, in terms of ending global human rights deprivations, how important is this issue of illicit financial flows? Is it the most important? Is it, is it in the top few? It is definitely in the top few, Fantastic. just in terms of the order of magnitude. Of course, there are other issues as well, mm. but just in terms of how many resources would be released for poverty eradication, uh, this issue dwarfs all others. I mean, I mean, thank you for um, for your work, you know, with Yale and the, and the Global Justice Program for making sure this is in in that top few. Is there any way we can we can support what you're doing? At least follow and, and make sure that we we're keeping this on the on the agendas of our leaders. Yes, you can definitely follow that. We have an extensive website, mm. uh, which is the website of the Global Justice Program. Yeah. I also run an organization that is called Academics Stand Against Poverty, yeah. or ASAP. Yeah. And I'm on the board of a third organization, Global Financial Integrity, that also has a wonderful website with a wealth of information. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Professor. Please please keep up the great work you do. Yes, you're most welcome. Okay, fantastic. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Uh, we started off with a, with a really interesting conversation with, with, with reporter Greg Nicholson, uh, who's tracking what the army is up to around the country. That's op- Operation Fiela Reclaim. And, 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 and as we've said a few times, whenever you're seeing the army uh, in the country, we, we, we really need to be worried about what they're up to. When they're on the streets and they're going into communities, you really need to be worried about how long will they be there, what exactly are they up to. I think one of the key things is that we can't normalize the SAND, SANDF deployments. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's really the key point, as you've mentioned. And, and secondly, is, is, is what's a priority here in this Fiela reclaim? As you've mentioned, Fiela means sort of sweep up, and those, those connotations can be quite worrying. So what exactly are we sweeping? Who are we sweeping? Is this really about, about going against the people who are, who are, who are, who are fighting and kicking out and sometimes even killing uh, foreigners in South Africa? Or are we actually just accelerating the, the, the exit of, of immigrants into the country? And, and, and a big thank you to, to lawyers for human rights for, for keeping up the work they're doing. Uh, we're just going to take a short break and we'll be right back just after this. Started from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team in. If you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, I'm joined in studio by Daily Maverick reporter Greg Nicholson. And, and, and actually, we're in quite esteemed company for the second half of this show. I'm joined by Dr. Robert Kavanagh, uh, who will be talking about his book, Zimbabwe, Challenging the Stereotypes. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Now, this is something we wanted to talk about. I think, I think in the South African sort of dialogue, Zimbabwe, I think, has been unfortunately belittled into just... Just a cautionary tale. It's just like, if we're not careful, we'll end up like Zimbabwe. And I think in that, we've, lo- we've lost so much about the details of what, what actually did, has happened and did happen in Zimbabwe. How did it get there? What's actually going on? And, and I fear it's become, you know, not much more than that. So it's, it's really great to have you on the show to shed some light on this. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Now, actually, before we get to the book, I'm quite interested to hear about your personal story. I mean, from South Africa, how did you end up in Zimbabwe? And, and how did your story with the country end up in, 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 in you writing this book? All right. Okay. Well, I'm South African to start yeah. off with. Yeah. Uh, born in Durban. Um, ended up, I suppose, uh, at UCT. Uh, got a Rhodes Scholarship from mm-hmm. UCT. Uh, then I went to, to Oxford, came back and taught, taught at Wits. And then I, I left for Leeds to do my PhD. And um, at that stage, I was married to Tembani and Dianene. So we, we stayed, we stayed there. <clears throat> and from that, um, once I'd finished my studies, I didn't want to stay in the UK. Okay. So I looked around for places which would be compatible with what I was interested in, which is basically cultural transformation, mm. uh, in a revolutionary situation. And, uh, Ethiopia, um, there was a place in Ethiopia, so I went to Ethiopia, I was four years in Ethiopia. Okay. From Ethiopia, then I found another situation in a similar, uh, set up in Zimbabwe shortly after, once again, a big change and a, a country which we hoped was concerned with cultural transformation. And so I came to Zimbabwe and I was in the, at the University of Zimbabwe, uh, for a long, long time. Then I'd finished in about 2011. I'd done my work, handed over the various things I was doing. Okay. And I thought, well, I'm a South African. Let me come back to South Africa. Yeah. Seems to make sense. I came back. I was two years in South Africa, and I said, "No, I think I'm much happier in Zimbabwe. <laughs> Let me go back." I had a house in Zimbabwe, so that was easy, yeah. and I went back, and that's where I am there to stay. Okay, fantastic. I mean, I, I love that you're actually living there. I think, I think a lot of the narratives and stories about Zimbabwe are written from people far, far away who browse a few, you know, articles and then puts put something easy together. Now, now one of the first, first of one of the first sort of myths, one of the first myths you you rubbish, so to speak, in the book is this idea that Zimbabwe started as the breadbasket of the continent and that, you know, it was it was feeding literally the whole continent mm. until all this doom and despair um, came about. Um, um, and you and you say that's 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 not really the case. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I, I must admit, I do my best not to try and rubbish yeah. anything. <laughs> I try and challenge okay. ideas, uh, and I'm not the first. Mm. Um, it, w- it was made easier for me by the fact that Professor Ian Schoons from yeah. Sussex University yeah. in England uh, did really what was a groundbreaking, groundbreaking, not groundbreaking research because Zimbabweans had done it. Okay. But if Zimbabweans come up with this research, it's not acceptable. Yeah. They say, oh, this is just a ZANU-PF, uh, you know, okay. follower, yeah. etc. And they don't pay any attention to it. So it was very important when an English, a respected English academic came and did some solid research with a Zimbabwean team yeah. in one province uh, in Zimbabwe, in yeah. the Mashingo province. Yeah. 
Uh, and then he came up with this book, which was called Zimbabwe's Land Reform, Myths and Reality. And he selected a number of myths, uh, all of them really revolving around the land reform. And he proceeded not to rubbish them, but to use solid evidence yes. uh, with testi- testimonies and statistics to show that most of what was being propagated in the media, particularly, I have to say disgracefully, in the South African media, yeah. but in the corporate media generally of, over all the world, uh, as things which are, everybody just takes for granted as being true. And people were not challenging or didn't have an interest in challenging them. And he shows how that, in fact, they're, they're, they're largely myths. Uh, either, like a myth. A myth is not always, is not completely untrue. Mm. A myth always has an element of, of truth in it. Uh, but they're certainly not facts, like they're propagated. And this breadbasket uh, idea is yeah. just one of them. I mean, my, I try and look at, a whole, I mean, every chapter be basically is concerned with a stereotype which it is trying yeah. to, to take on. First of all, the whole idea that at independence, Zimbabwe had everything going for it. Mm. Then others like the Gukuruhundi so-called massacres yeah. uh, or genocide, if you like, in the west of the country, so-called Matabeleland. The involvement of Zimbabwe as part of a SADC force in the DRC. The fact, and the biggest of all, is sanctions. We're just told over and over again that there are no sanctions or they're just targeted against certain political cronies Mm. or travel sanctions. The sanctions that have been levied and imposed on on Zimbabwe are blanket. The U.S. US sanctions on on Zimbabwe are such that they affect every aspect of, of economic survival. And the point is, as we all know, once the U.S. imposes uh, sanctions of that kind, yeah. all the others have to fall in. So the, 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 the EU tries to keep squeaky clean and say, oh, no, no, it's just a question of armaments and, and travel bans, etc. But they know that they are imp- applying the very same sanctions because the U.S. are applying them. And if they go against them, they're in trouble. I hear you, and I think it's so important to bring this kind, this kind of nuance, and 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 sometimes just plainly disproving with facts uh, the, what the media is reporting that isn't true. I think you've touched on one thing that I think I think is really important to dig into is the question of land reform. Um, it, it's something that that in South Africa is you know is, is has become a the hot topic with with the economic freedom fighters, and and there's there's often reference to Zimbabwe on both sides. So on on one side is that. The land reform was a complete failure, and it was a it was a bloodbath for, with the uprising of the army veterans. And on the other side is, is Zimbabwe is the you know is the only truly free country, and we must all emulate Zimbabwe. And there seems to be nothing in between. You've got mm. people who are saying it's perfect, and we must be like them, and people saying it was a massacre. Mm. So I mean, I'd love if you could just talk talk about about your writings on this and, and of the of the other book from from your fellow professor that you said specifically focused on the land issue, mm. just to shed some light of the on the land reform question and and, and where where. where where, where, where should we actually find ourselves? Because obviously these two narratives that I've pointed out are so, are so extreme and biased. So where, where, where actually is the truth in all this? Well, Kingsley, it's interesting mm. that at least this kind of discourse yeah. has appeared. Yeah. The idea that, that Zimbabwe and knowing the facts about yeah. Zimbabwe have any relationship or can be beneficial or instructive in any way to South Africans. That that is now on the map is very important. And this comes back to why I wrote the book. Um, I'm a South African. I have not written it for Zimbabweans. The Zimbabwean discussion is, as you say, as you've mentioned now, this, this kind of discussion about land reform totally polarized. It's very, very difficult if you're an outsider <laughs> to come and talk to either side. Yeah. If you've had the experience, for instance, of talking to Eritreans yeah. and Ethiopians, yeah. a, a fact is not a fact. You know, it's an emotion. Uh, and it's the same sort of thing in South Africa, in, in Zimbabwe. So I never wrote the book for Zimbabweans. Yeah. What I was really concerned with all along is I was concerned about my own country, about South Africa. Yeah. I felt that was what I was watching over all these years um, was a series of extraordinary historical events, very, very important in terms of their, of their, of their significance for countries all over the world, but particularly South Africa. Uh, and I wanted South Africans 
because I felt that South Africans, number one, unfortunately, have a certain belief uh, initiated, I think, in the apartheid period yeah. that Africa has nothing to teach them. Absolutely. That they're a unique, different country. Mm-hmm. And so that they tend also to be very ignorant about what happens north of the Limpopo. And therefore, they are very susceptible to propaganda. Um, so I, and I, I think that that's, that's what they've got from the press in this country, even the SABC most of the time, and definitely what they've got from the big international media. So I just wanted to write something which would tell another story. And at the same time, I felt that people all over the world, progressive people, people who realize that another myth is that what you get on these international media is the truth. It's always the truth. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> um, we're looking for another story. I've come across so many people who sort of want to say, say look, is it really like that? And I simply wanted to tell, to tell another story. And why I particularly wanted to tell it to South Africans is I felt that South Africa is the closest country in Africa uh, Zimbabwe is the closest country in Africa to South Africa. Um, there are a, tr- a tremendous amount of similarities. It's not the same, yeah. but there are a tremendous amount of similarities. And I feel that if South Africans had been watching carefully and had access to the truth and to the reality of what was really taking place and were trying to apply applied education, experiential education, take what was going on in Zimbabwe and start taking stock of our own situation here in South Africa and begun to, to discuss it and possibly come up with better, better ways of handling it, I think that would have meant a lot. And I think we wouldn't, South Africa wouldn't be in quite the situation it is today. I mean, I mean, I really hope so. Yeah. Sorry, if you're just tuning in, um, this is the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We have someone on WeChat, Iggy, asking how to listen to previous shows. Um, please go to cliffcentral.com, and if you click on the podcast link, um, all our previous shows are on there, as well as all the all the podcasts from all the other shows on. Um, so back to uh, Dr. Robert Kavanagh talking about his book, uh, Zimbabwe Challenging the Stereotypes. I think, Greg, you have a question. Yeah, for um, Dr. Kavanagh, you're saying that uh, if if South Africans were attuned to to the realities of what we, what was going on or what's been happening in Zimbabwe, perhaps perhaps the country would have chosen some different pathways. Can you give us some some specific examples? What what might be different in South Africa if we focused um, more realistically on on Zimbabwe's affairs? Well, I think the one that you've raised is the whole question of the wealth and the land. Um, we know that South Africa has, has become even more unequal than it was 20 years ago. Uh, in fact, I believe it is the most unequal country in the world yeah. economically after Brazil. Mm. And I feel if they had realized that, look, when, when, the people were fighting in Zimbabwe. Uh, they had a song, Simuka Zimbabwe, and it speaks about Tinoda Nika, right? Tinoda Nika, Neufumi Waiwose. We want the country, but we want the wealth with it. It's not a question of just getting the country and having your own person as president. Mm-hmm. You know, it, what, what, what was important during those struggle years is that the country is a wealthy country. It has resources. It has the capacity for happiness, the capacity for a better life. And it, independence or democracy should be the key to unlocking that. Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, how Zimbabwe handled that would have been very interesting. And then how the, the, the circumstances that, that led to Zimbabwe precipitately uh, taking over the land and then moving for indigenization of the economy and ownership of the economy and the development of one's own resources financially, etc., to develop the economy. If I think South Africa had watched that, they, I think they could have seen that in South, in South Africa a similar process must take place because the same denial, the same abnegation, is, is taking place and the people are just as unhappy and as, 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 as deprived as they are, they were in Zimbabwe. We see the response of the people in Zimbabwe, the, the combatants, the government itself. Yeah. Now, surely, if we look at that, the lesson is on the wall for those who have the wealth in this country. 
people say, why not be so sorry for the commercial farmers? In all those years, they, they had the, the, an enormous percentage of the land, the fertile land. They knew it. They had taken it. And they had handed over the rest, uh, you know, barren, uh, sort of uh, uh, not good rainfall, etc., to the others. Surely it must have, it must have occurred to them that, look, the struggle was <laughs> to have a, a share of this. To redistribute or, to, or, or or develop this together, surely they they must have had a twinge of conscience. Why did they not, right from the beginning, begin to avert what happened later by coming up with strategies and discussions whereby they were prepared to bring people in, to share the resources, to divide their farms? Because they, they had farms that were so ridiculously big, uh, you know. I mean, in, in the time of roads. They were just being donated like they were figures, you know. Um, share their farms, use their farms to train other farmers, and together work towards a situation where they could produce a more equal economy. In Zimbabwe, it is largely the land. Here, it is more than the land. It's finance, it's industry, yeah. it's mining, you know, it's, it's the land as well. And that has to... well. For myself, yeah. looking at the situation in Zimbabwe, if I was a South African, and if I was a South African who was wealthy, uh, 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 you know, somebody, uh, you know, in the in the ruling, uh, the, so the financially ruling class, I'd be saying to myself, "Look, this is going to change. It's going to have to change. These people cannot be denied for for for, for all this time. Something is going to happen. Look what happened in Zimbabwe, and." Why am I not working together with government, working together with others in the industry and with other organizations to try and find a solution which might, might be better for the country eventually? Okay. I mean, I, I think it's, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's great that we can, that with, with, with the understanding of some of the details behind what's going on in Zimbabwe, we can actually, there are actually some lessons. I, I hate this sort of cautionary tale thing. That's mm. almost like a, it's almost like the boogeyman, you know, you would tell with kids, like, be careful, Eskom, or be careful, Jacob Zuma, or else we'll end mm. up like that. So I love that there's still some, some lessons here. Mm. Um, I mean, something that, that comes up so often is, is the role of, of, of Robert Mugabe and, and how much, how much of this is actually can be ascribed to one, to one person. So how much of it is actually just the, the colonial legacy and playing out and the, and the, and the people demanding what was theirs and how much of it is actually just the will, the force of will. And of one person trying to trying to shape the country through what 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 he sees as being the right way forward for the country. So how much do we ascribe to him, and how I much want, is actually I just want to the get context? Back to something else, yeah. and that is linked to my question: Why are you playing U.S. American music? Hmm. Sorry, just for context, when he walked into the studio, we were playing Drake, and he and he wasn't so happy about that. Yeah. Um, I, I worked for a long time with a, a children and youth organization. We had we used to have young people coming up from South Africa. Yeah. Uh, and black kids, black young black kids, children, and despite what they'd heard about Zimbabwe, almost all of them loved it and loved being there and loved moving there and loved and felt that they were free. And I, I'd like to refer to the, the book Coconut. In my latest book uh, about Gibson Kente, the, the great South African playwright, yeah. I t I've taken a quote from it, which is basically, we can't walk around in our own way. We can't be free to walk around in big groups, to talk loudly, to, to, to laugh our komboti laughs. This is what you have in Zimbabwe, because the issue, the issue is not, and because I'm from the cultural sphere, the issue is not about legislative change, just legislative change, or material advancement and development. It is about cultural change. Now, by culture, people tend to departmentalize, compartmentalize. Yeah. I'm not talking about the arts. Yes, that's important. Right. The culture is the broader, how do we live? How do we behave? What are the images we see around us? Yeah. Is this a, a, a really a country which you can call a rainbow country, or is it a white country? The feeling about Zimbabwe when people go is that you are really in an yeah. African country. And you don't have that feeling here. And I think, and I, and I think that that's another thing. That whatever has happened, whatever the losses, whatever the risks, 
Zimbabweans have created a country where the majority of Zimbabweans now feel that the country has been refashioned in their image. I mean, I, I, there's a quote from your book that I love that you said, even if all the myths were true, it was better that it happened the way it did than not happened at all. And the land and all its wealth now belongs to the people. And that's what, one thing I want to follow up on as well is that in terms of the land reforms in Zimbabwe, did they some sort of, in some sort of way precipitate or, or create this feeling that it's an African country for the people of Zimbabwe? Was that, is that a strong part or was that already there before the land, the recent land reforms in the last 15 years? I don't think it was just the land reform. I think the land reform has to be seen in a, in a wider context. Mm. And it's basically this con- the, Zimbabwe tried to be another kind of country. It went to the IMF. It got into terrible problems. It was thrashing left, right, and center. It was trying its best to bring the benefits of education and things like that to the people, but it didn't have a strong enough uh, finance base to do it. And so it was running into debt. Then the, the feeling now was we will not do this unless we unlock the land. And they tried to have, uh, you know, conferences to try and get support for that. They tried to get, to hold the British to their, 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 their undertaking to support that. Um, and it wasn't working. And I think that when they went for the land, yeah. they broke the taboo. They broke the sense of wanting to be a Western country, wanting to be approved by England, approved by America, wanting to keep up standards. There was this thing about standards that ruled and in a way stymied the way in which the country developed. We must show them that we can keep our country just like the Rhodesians had it, keep up the standards, etc. But, <laughs> yeah, but there was never any, any interrogation of those standards. Yeah. Can we afford them? Are these the standards? Whose standards are those? So I think when they broke all that and when they took the land, lots of things happened. For instance, one of the big things was the transformation of the media. Before they had tried to be fair, uh, tried to balance, etc. Mm. Now they simply said 75% local, local content. This is Jonathan Moyle. And suddenly the creative talent that was unlocked amongst young people all over Zimbabwe, this came at the same time as digitization. So anybody could get a laptop and start recording, making a video, etc. And I remember in the early days, the songs that came up, many of them were out of tune. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know. yeah. But those very, I, I remember Ped Zenai, yeah. uh, 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 one of the singers, she used to sing like that. And I remember I had to go to uh, the Zana PF uh, 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 sort of conference center uh, for uh, an independence uh, cultural and Peds and I was on the program. Oh, my God. <laughs> Boy, when I saw her, yes. she was a talented, confident professional. No more singing out of tune. <laughs> and I think that that was another thing. And the jingles, which, which, sounds, which sound so much like propaganda, yeah. you know, which are singing, you know, Zimbabweans keep on fighting, take the land, let's, let's, let's farm the land, etc. Played over and over again and sung in townships all over the place. For me, a, 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 a shaping moment was when I was at a, a beauty contest, I think, in, at the conference center. And the people who attend that are not Zanupiev. <laughs> They're usually people who oppose it, yeah. uh, people who don't even listen to the radio. But then the band struck up one of these jingles, <laughs> and the whole place got up. And I think it was at that point when Zimbabweans said, we are Zimbabweans. Let's be Zimbabweans. Let's do things our own way and to hell with this pretense. And I think there was a major cultural change. And I think that this emphasis on culture, that is the, the need for cultural transformation, for creating a society that is in the image of the majority. Uh, Steve Biko. Had, had, was on was on the ball, where he said at one point he said, uh, "People think I'm against integration." Then he said, "If by integration you mean that I must I must enter into a world which has been uh, where the mores, the conventions, and the values have been decided by the white minority, no, I'm not in favor of integration." Uh, so the point is basically, if we want a rainbow nation, you never have it now. This is something you'd have to fight for. The rainbow is always on the horizon. It'll take a long time to get there. But the answer 
you can't have a rainbow nation when one color is totally dominant. And that's the same with everything. The majority culture, in my opinion, uh, I know that at one stage when, when people were t- during the sunset clauses and during the negotiations, yeah. the newspapers yeah. was, were equating, your newspapers were equating majority rule with, with tyranny. They were terrified of majority rule. I'm not terrified of majority rule. And I think that that's what we need. We want a country which caters for the majority, is not just ruled by the majority, caters for the majority. The majority participate and share in it, and it belongs to them, and the culture reflects this. And then majority is is not a white thing or a black thing. I feel I'm part of that majority. Anybody of any race in South Africa who feels that common identity as all South Africans, a South Africa that is ours, all of us, is, is, is the majority. Doctor, but one of the interesting things about that integration with the majority is if you do look at South Africa, uh, it, it's quite common for white South Africans not to try to adopt that majority's culture or language um, or, or interest in those customs, where it seems... You have in, in Zimbabwe, um, reflect quite a lot of these things in terms of the languages you speak, the topics you're interested in, and all, all these different things. But is that common in Zimbabwe? Is it for, for white people in Zimbabwe? Is it much more common to be incorporated into the culture of the majority, unlike South Africa? South Africa so I never went to Zimbabwe and then became interested in all these mm. languages. I, I, it was South Africa who made me like mm. that. People sometimes, they say when they hear me speak Zulu or Sutu or something, they'll say to me, they'll be surprised. I say, why are you surprised? Here in Gauteng, most people, the majority, speak five or six languages. But what I was saying is nothing. most whites don't. No. No, yeah. I mean, I. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, so, unfortunately, yeah, so like all the time about. we have. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, a big, big thank you to you for coming yeah. on the show, and we'll make sure to go out and, and get the book um, um, from your publishing company, company Temba, and, and and we look forward to much more coming from the from mm. the company. So, thank you for writing this and for and for coming. And we on. no longer have t- have time to say what the next title right. is. Okay, we have like three seconds. Three What's seconds, the next title? right? The next title yeah. is Footprints in Stone. Yeah. The Zenze, Women of the Zenzele Movement in South Africa by Mango Chabango. And when, when can we expect a release? Uh, in the next few months. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Greg. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Uh, tune into the Daily Maverick Show next week.